I think most kids, frankly, would benefit from learning a stress inoculation practice, from increasing their threshold for stress. For me, that came through skateboarding, martial arts, and unfortunately, some hard events that threw me into stress. For other people, it comes from something else. But I think that we can enhance our capacity to cope with stress because these neural circuits that allow us to maintain clarity of mind when we're flooded with adrenaline, those circuits can be modified by experience. If you learn how to do that a few times, then when real life stress hits and kind of smacks you square in the face, you learn how to open up your gaze, realize where you are in time and in space, think for a second or more about what you're going to do and react adaptively. So you don't do stupid things that get you into trouble or that injure other people or yourself or get you thrown in jail or worse, you know, dead. I'm Doug Bobst personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes, and today's guest on the show is Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist and tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He has made numerous important contributions to the fields of brain development, brain function, and neuroplasticity, which is the ability of our nervous system to rewire and learn new behaviors, skills, and cognitive functioning. Huberman is a McKnight Foundation and Pew Foundation Fellow and was awarded the Kogan Award in 2017, which is given to the scientists making the largest discoveries in the study of vision. Work from the Huberman Laboratory at Stanford Medical School has been published in top journals, including Nature, Science, and Cell, and has been featured in Time, BBC, Scientific American, Discover, and other top media outlets. And the Adversity Advantage welcomes you, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Dr. Huberman, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks so much. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the generous introduction. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, man. So a lot of people don't know this about you. Uh, I happen to, to find this out that, you know, you kind of a, a quite a story yourself, you know, and I love sharing important stories on here of people who have overcome adversity and turn into something great. And talk about your backstory. I know you almost didn't graduate high school. You almost, you were kind of only let, allowed back in, if I remember correctly, with, you know, the help of a therapist. And now you are, you know, a neuroscientist. So talk a bit about your journey back then, what was going on and kind of like how it got you to where you are today. Yeah. So the beginning of my path put me on the direct track to science. You know, I grew up with, you know, two parents and a sister and my mom wrote children's books and my dad was and still is a scientist. He's a theoretical physicist. He came to the U.S. from Argentina on a, on a naval scholarship to basically to be a graduate student. Met my mom in New York. They had us. So from the time I was born until about age 13 or so, I had a pretty fantastic home life, right? I, I, we ate dinner together every night as a family. There was limited TV time. My mom would kick us outside to play. I can honestly say, you know, I was fortunate enough that there was, you know, no heavy alcohol consumption or drugs of abuse. I wasn't physically abused. None of that. Right. It was just 
happy home. I mean, it had its issues like any family, but I was just very blessed. And my dad was, because he was a scientist, you know, graduate students would come around. We would talk about science from time to time. We didn't talk about the details of theoretical physics, but I grew up with a lot of science in my home. My dad wasn't really into sports. He played a little tennis and he ran and stuff, but we didn't watch the Super Bowl, but I could tell you, you know, what meal was served at the Nobel Prize ceremonies. I knew the names of all the Nobel Prize winning physicists. I knew backstories of their relationships and their childhoods. Like I knew a lot about the sociology of science and how it all kind of fit together because we would spend summers at the Aspen Center for Physics. It was really magical. And, and I got to be exposed to some of the greatest minds of the last century in terms of just being around these guys. And it was mostly guys, to be fair. There were a few women, it was mostly guys. So all of that was like pointed toward a life in science. I loved biology. I love animals. I love animal behavior. I love the way animals move. And I love the sort of biomechanics and just, you know, I was just obsessed. I read the encyclopedia. I was obsessed with the Guinness Book of World Records, all that. And so I was kind of fated to be a scientist, I think, at that level. But then right about 12, 13 my family started destabilizing a lot. My dad, my mom split up, which these days is pretty standard for a lot of families, unfortunately. But back then it was pretty rare. I think I was one of two kids in my school, divorced parents, you know, because I'm 45 years old now and I'll be 45 soon. So it was just a lot rarer back then, you know, kind of mid eighties, early eighties. And so my dad moved away. My mom struggled a lot with the breakup basically. And my sister was off at college and, and had her own set of struggles. So what happened was right about the time I hit puberty, started to hit puberty, there was very little semblance of what I just described. There, you know, we didn't eat dinner together. There was no authority really in the home. My mom was really having a, a challenging time. I was really concerned based on some things that were going on about what was going to happen to me. You know, I wasn't sure financially if we were going to have to move. I wasn't sure, you know, I just didn't know what was going to happen, you know? And so because I was hitting puberty, I, you know, I did what a lot of kids do. You know, I, I didn't rebel, but I just, I went to the nearest thing that felt good to me and really poured myself into that. And for me at the time that was skateboarding, you know, every kid that grows up where I grew up played soccer and swam. I was never a phenomenal athlete. I was an okay athlete, not great, but skateboarding for me was great. A, you didn't need parents around. So there was no like, you know, it's my dad's not going to be at the game, you know, what game, right? You know, you could do it anytime you want. You could skateboard out your door at 10 o'clock at night and, you know, get under the street lamps and grind curbs and do that. There were some kids that I knew that down at the end of the street that skateboarded. I had a close friend that was really into skateboarding. So I just poured myself into skateboarding. And I can't say I ever got that good. I don't think my body developed enough. I just didn't have the strength. But I started also taking the bus from where I lived in the South Bay area up to San Francisco. And this was a time where uh, if there are any members of the audience from my generation, there was a, a group of kids that hung out there at the Embarcadero, the EMB crew. And this was, you know, it was a mixture of skateboarders and kids that had no parents at home, really, that would live there. There were just kids that lived there, just like there were kids in Washington Square Park in New York or Love Park in Philly. You know, there are these communities that get set up of these kids that are really just truant. And I met some of the most amazing people, some of whom are still around today, many of whom unfortunately are gone. But there was this nascent skateboard scene and it was incredible. I 
saw what it was to grow up where there was no parental control. And it was kind of like, it was just wild. I mean, there was definitely a lot of problems too. I mean, there was a lot of drug use. There were a lot of fights. There was a lot of things that, you know, a 14 year old kid probably shouldn't be exposed to, but I was pretty wild and free. And so from about 14 until 16 or 17, I barely went to high school. I had a girlfriend at the time or soon after I just started spending all my time with her or skateboarding and no one really noticed, frankly, except I think at school they were pretty concerned, but there was, there was no way to regulate me. And then I started getting into some fights and then I started being a little bit more rebellious, you know, and this is what happened when, when testosterone and rebellion and some problems at home get combined. You, you know, it's like throwing some gasoline on the fire. So what happened really was I, I got really into tie boxing of all things. I, I think I had a lot of aggression and anger in me about what was going on because I'd had this really magical upbringing. And then all of a sudden I had, there was nothing, there was no, I wasn't really sure on how I was going to make a living someday. If I was going to, what I would do, if I was where I was going to eat, what I was going to do. So I was learning how to just survive. Mm. And I was fortunate enough that I got pulled out of school. I got into some trouble and I wasn't incarcerated, but I got pulled out of school and was, and was put away against my will. Let's just put it that way. And the deal was if I wanted to be let out and let back into school, I was going to have to go to therapy. I was like, and okay, so this is the late 80s, early 90s, and nobody talked about therapy back then. So I started going to therapy, and the therapist that I saw was amazing because he really understood what I was going through, and he understood my need for structure. And he could see that my drive, all this obsession with skateboarding and, and fighting and boxing, and he just, he could tell that I was hungry to create some, some structure for myself and to kind of rescue myself, but I was going about it all wrong. So I started, you know, talking to him once or twice a week. I think it was twice a week at first. I was let back into school. So that's the story. I skipped awesome. over a lot of details, but I'll tell you, I saw in those years a ton of addiction, violence, mm. sociopathy, depression. I saw that. I, unfortunately, I didn't experience all that myself. But And I, I've always been fascinated with the question of what makes some people thrive? Why do other people suffer? And why is it that, you know, one person takes a drink and it's like, yeah, yeah, maybe I drink again, maybe not. And somebody else takes a drink and they go down the path of alcoholism and their life essentially is that until they, they decide is, to get so, sober. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much I could unpack about your story, but, and I think it's amazing. You shared so much in depth of how you really took a big negative in your life. It could have been an even deeper negative, turn it into something really positive. You know, you had all kinds of you know, neurochemical imbalances and trauma growing up that you now are helping other people be able to better understand. And the one thing that, you know, you turn to fighting and violence, I turn to drugs. So the one thing I wanted to ask you is we hear a lot about drugs being a genetic disease and drugs, this, the, the brain, I kind of have my own, you know, perception of it. But what I wanted to ask you is what do drugs and things like anger and violence, what do they do to the brain? And after you use them, is there a, do they have long-term effects to the point where you're not able to rewire them through neuroplasticity or how does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. So at the root of most all, most all mischief and self-destruction is dopamine. Mm. Now, I don't want to give dopamine a bad rap because at the root of all of human evolution and progression is dopamine. but 
when you take your story or my story and you say, well, what's the common theme? Again, this is the idea of like, what are the common principles? It's that, you know, a young person with a hunger for something, for novelty that gets bored easily, that wants something to happen, that wants excitement, you're seeking dopamine. And I think it's a beautiful thing when a young child and an adolescent and a teen can learn to, to achieve those dopamine hits or whatever you want to call them through healthy activities, through things that serve them well mm. and promote wellness, right? I mean, there's everything good about, you know, running on the cross country team or, you know, jogging a couple miles a few times a week. That's great. And the, the endorphin and dopamine release that you experience from that is wonderful and healthy and serves to reinforce those behaviors. Everything I described and some of the things that you've described in your story is, are about chasing dopamine and trying to find that. We need it. It's a non-negotiable. And the question is, are you going to get it through things that are healthy and that build your life or that send your life down the path of challenge and destruction? You asked whether or not you can rewire these circuits. Well, so wait, why do, we, why do we need dopamine? Is it just because it would like so, keep our energy systems going throughout the day? So dopamine is normally associated with the feeling of reward and it is, does make us feel good. But dopamine is what keeps us motivated toward a goal, toward reward. So if an animal, this, remember these systems exist in dogs and in cats and in birds and elephants for that matter. This chemical was designed to put animals, including humans, on a path to something and to pursue things outside our own immediate reach. They are the opposite of the chemicals that make us feel good with everything that we've got in our immediate space, like serotonin and the opioid system. And we can talk about those. So dopamine was designed to motivate us. Think about dopamine more or less as a jet engine that propels you in a certain direction. Mm. And then when you get to where you want to go, you get replenishment of that dopamine. That's essentially the way dopamine works. It's the reason why thirsty animals and humans get up and move toward the sink. It's the reason that if you're food deprived, you seek food. It's the reason why if you want more resources to secure a better life, you, you focus on the external and figure out how you, this organism that has a container, your skin, is going to move through the environment to get to that thing, that reward, and that build. And so human evolution is largely the consequence of the action of dopamine. Solving a puzzle for a scientist, you know, discovering something, that is a massive dopamine rush. And dopamine can be released in small amounts or big amounts. The genetic thing that you asked about is interesting. There is this idea that some people have a greater propensity for sensation seeking and novelty seeking. I would say that most people lie, you know, it's on a continuum, but that most people have pretty healthy levels of dopamine transmission. But Early in development, the things that you experience that are that really kind of wake you up and thrill you, the excitement about a song that you hear when you're 15 is will forever be embedded in you. And that's that relationship between dopamine and plasticity. So not only is dopamine motivating you and driving you towards rewards, but dopamine is involved in queuing up the brain and nervous system's ability to change. So you want more of the thing that gave you that. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it's so logical. Let's say you're a thirsty animal and you find the stream that gives you water. Dopamine doesn't reinforce your relationship to the stream. It does that, but it mostly reinforces the walking and the pursuit to, that got you to the stream. 
And so when you think about replace stream with a drug of abuse like cocaine, and at first it's about the feeling of getting cocaine, but they've looked very carefully at what happens in the brain when people are anticipating drugs. And that's where you get the surge of dopamine that gets you out there doing what you need to do in order to secure that drug. It's a thrill. You know, I remember when I was going and scoring drugs as a kid, you're right. Like you're more like the rush comes more from how you're going to get it that day. than from actually, once you do it, you're like, Oh, why the hell did I do that again? You know what I mean? That's it's the chase, right? But once you get, once you catch, you're like, Oh, you know what I mean? Exactly. And, and, you know, for some people it's drugs. Uh, like I said, I was fortunate that that wasn't the way I was wired. You know, I eventually, I think replaced some of the some of it with exercise, you know, for me, exercise is a non-negotiable. I'm not maniacal about it, but I definitely, I need my four or five workouts a week or I, it's pleasure for me when people are like, oh, I have to work out. I'm like, oh my goodness, if I could just keep, if I could recover, I'll work out again. You know, I'm jealous of people that can train twice a day and still recover. I can't, I don't have those kind of recovery abilities, but you know, whether or not it's drugs or it's food or it's water or it's sex. I mean, think about it. The propagation of our species, the reproduction of our species, and the continuation of our species is the most important aspect of our biology in every species, okay? So obviously, sex needs to be age-appropriate and consensual, all, all of that. But the important thing to understand is that the dopamine system was wired into the pursuit of mates for this very reason. Because Mother Nature needed to install a mechanism in us that would universally drive us towards the things that would allow us to reproduce and to continue, whether or not it's water, food, sex, warmth, shelter, social connection. You can't overstate the power of dopamine. Now, there's a, I just want to make what's sure I answer your question. With sex, let me ask you, real quick, sorry to interrupt you, with oxytocin and dopamine, is there a difference? I mean, one's a hormone, I think, and one's a neurotransmitter, correct? That's right. So oxytocin's a works as what we call a hormone neurotransmitter, kind of does a little bit of both. But I'm glad you brought that up because we have other reward systems in the brain. So there's also a serotonin system in the brain and an oxytocin system in the brain. And those are very rewarding too. They make us feel kind of blissful. Less, um, you know, if we were going to use the, the kid, the, you know, like the kids say, like, are you like really psyched and hyped and like keyed up? That would be dopamine. Blissful and blissed out, that's more serotonin and oxytocin, okay? So, and probably nowadays there's language that I just don't know because I'm 45 years old. So forgive me to the, the, uh, the younger audiences if there's a different language around all that. But oxytocin and serotonin are feel-good molecules that tend to promote a sense of stillness or a desire to remain still. They are what are released when you eat a good meal. They're what's released post-orgasm in sex to encourage both parties of that mating event to stay still to exchange pheromones so that there's a pair bond is established and the pair bond is very diabolical and very beautiful i say diabolical because it's arranged it's prearranged subconsciously so that you will hopefully build the kind of bonds that will allow you to raise children together that is the that is the basis of that neurochemistry now we know this because there are species of animals that are monogamous and species and other members of the same species that are not, and the extent to which oxytocin and another molecule called vasopressin are released depends on whether or not they're monogamous or not. But remember, these chemicals were designed to, to bias our behavior toward action or stillness. So the thing about dopamine that's really beautiful, but also can be quite sinister, is that 
Dopamine wants more dopamine. Dopamine puts you in action. Dopamine, you know, you talk to a drug user and they, they might, if it's a, a drug like heroin, it creates a sense of quiescence and like stillness. I mean, the, the, the opioid system is the ultimate form of stillness, right? It creates this kind of state in which people don't want to go out and do anything else until they need more. Mm. The dopamine system, so amphetamines and cocaine, unfortunately, tend to put people on the path to more. As soon as they get it, they, they're thinking about more. And when you look into the world of process addictions, things like sex addiction and food addictions, because it's a little complicated what constitutes an addiction when you start getting into behavior, behavioral addictions, but they do exist. What you find is people will report the same thing, that they're seeking sex or food and then they get it and that's not even the reward for them anymore. They're more into the seeking than the actual reward. And that's when you start to look at things like online apps and dating apps and things. You start to say, wow, like we are really being leveraged. We need to be conscious of what's happening here. So there are these two reward systems. One makes us kind of still the serotonin oxytocin system. The other one is designed to, to put us into modes of more pursuit. And the opioid system, I feel obligated to just mention, because we talked about it briefly, like heroin and the opioids those were designed to be triggered in our body. Their release happens naturally in our body, but at very low levels. Mm. They were basically designed as Mother Nature's painkillers so that if you and I have to walk 100 miles together to go to a new village or do something or, or to find something, and I, my, I've got a blister and my ankle's hurting and my knee is hurting, the opioid system can kick in and provide some pain relief but it was never designed to be released in the massive quantities that things like Oxycontin and other drugs do for so many people. And again, I, I, don't, I don't hate the pharmaceutical industry or the biotechnology industry, quite the opposite, but I think we have to understand the tremendously large amount that's released when people take those things as opposed to when they do natural behaviors. So- I want to get into, that was awesome, all the insight you just provided on how drugs like impact our neurochemistry and dopamine and everything. The one drug I think that you're very passionate about that it goes under the radar, I think, is our cell phones. And we're seeing now that during this pandemic and even as the rise of technology is that's being used for business, being used for connection, everything else, we're seeing more people on their phones. How has, how have you seen like, people who are addicted to their phones, how is it impacting their brains? So I think it's important if we're going to talk about addiction that we define what addiction is. So I define addiction as a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure or bring someone pleasure. Right. And I think it's important to define it that way because the biology supports that definition. The difference between somebody who has a glass of wine or two a couple nights a week and somebody who's a alcoholic is the alcoholic really doesn't care for much else besides alcohol after some point. Or they are unable to engage or care for much else without alcohol being there first. So I think it's important to understand that. It's almost like the dopamine circuits become overtaken by this singular drive or the singular stimulus. Now, people can be addicted to multiple things, but in general, that definition, I think, works. The other thing that I think is important for us to understand, especially when we're talking about cell phone addiction, is that addictions lower the baseline on our life, right? A heroin user doesn't need to use much heroin for the first time 
before their relationships and their job and their health is going to suffer. I can get addicted to water, but I have to drink a lot of water before my relationships, my health, and my, my profession starts to suffer. I could do it, but it, they are far and away different molecules uh, in terms of how they're impacting the nervous system. And so I think it's important to understand where cell phones fit into that. Phones obviously have an enormous utility. They, they save lives in many ways, right? First responders need them. I communicate with my lab for them, with them. Physicians use them. I mean, they're absolutely crucial devices for modern living. But there is a way in which they start to take a significant amount of our time and start to impede our ability to experience pleasure with other things if we're away from our phones for too long. So there's definitely an anxiety associated with being away from the phone. Some of that's meaningful. You know, parents want to know where their kids are. Uh, you know, spouses want to know where they're able to communicate with their spouse. You know, it, this kind of thing. But I think that it's not just the likes that you get on social media. It's really the fact that so much of the content in the phone is now being curated to your specific desires and what you want and what you're seeking and purchasing. In fact, your phone and the AI in your phone knows you better than you do. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that not only knows you better than you do, but it knows to deliver certain things at certain times of day and at particular rates. And it actually has mapped your behavior to the point where it knows where you're foraging and when, so it can start to predict your behavior probably even better than you can. And so I don't think phones are evil. Look, I grew up in Silicon Valley area. I live here now. I, I don't think they're evil. I think they're, they're absolutely indispensable for modern living. But I think that there's a misconception. The misconception is that you make your money or your living on social media or that if you don't communicate something on social media or through a phone, it didn't happen. If you don't send a photo, something via text, et cetera. When in fact, if you look at people who are very successful in life, you find that most of that success is achieved away from, certainly from the phone and from screens of most sort, and unless maybe they're a writer or they're developing, you know, they're like stitching music and doing this kind of thing or creating music. So the laptop is a, is a tool for creation. The phone is a tool for communication mainly. And in general, if you, want to be successful in life, you need to have some discipline around the phone. I have found that the phone is increasingly invading my life. You know, there's now, there've been a couple studies showing that more often than not, when people are watching a movie, they're also watching, they've got another screen in front of them too. So they've got phone and tablet or phone and computer. So we're starting to stack screens now. And I, I do an experiment every once in a while where I just lock my phone in a safe to write or to run. and you know, I, I'd almost forgotten what it was to be away from it. So I think it does leverage these dopamine circuits. I think it, that we were talking about earlier, I think it also leverages some of those serotonin circuits, the ones that make you feel good, because frankly, it's nice when you land in a new city and you've been traveling and you go to your hotel and you plop down on the bed and you open your phone and you can have a conversation with somebody. So it's not all bad, but I think we need to pay careful attention to the baselines in our life and be cautious about that. And I'll say one more thing about the phones, which is it is a small box. And when you're bringing your visual attention to a very narrow point of focus throughout the day and repeatedly, you are exhausting your neural circuits and your capacity for focus. And you only get so much of that to spend, so to speak, each day. 
And so if you're somebody who is thinking about creative projects, building a podcast, writing a book, um, studying for exams, you know, building a career of any kind, or embellishing or building relationships, every time you're absorbed into your phone for a couple hours or 20 minutes or so, you're spending out powers of attention that can be, if, it's a, if you feel appropriate, can be spent on other things. So you can't do it all. You can't look at your phone all day and do all those other things. You really need to understand that some of the ADD that we hear people talking about, like, oh, I have, I have ADD. I think people have given themselves a bit of ADD. The attentional circuits in the brain that involve things like acetylcholine and norepinephrine, those are, are learning to pursue things inside that little box that you call your phone and I call my phone. And the brain is a learning machine. You do it enough, you know, the last 10 years, a lot of, there've been a lot of smartphones from about 2010 on. You do that for 10 years, your brain is reshaped and you can shape it back again, but it, it takes some significant work. You know, the interesting thing is that, you know, your, your brain, it can reshape your brain, all types of addictions, whether it is through a behavioral or a process or addiction, like can like change the wiring of your brain. And just from my experience, I always heard, the drugs rot your brain, you know, pot kills brain cells, you know, cocaine, all this stuff. Do you believe that it really, that the drugs really do quote unquote kill brain cells? And can you like rewire your brain through neuroplasticity over the long run to kind of get your brain back to, you know, baseline? And if so, how can you do that? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, so... Certain drugs like cocaine that strongly impact the dopamine system actually lead to changes in gene expression in the dopamine pathways of the brain such that we want to crave more of the thing that brought that dopamine. It changes the thresholds for dopamine so that other things are less pleasurable. All this is to say that you know, right down to the core elements of the cells. I mean, not, there's nothing more fundamental than the gene expression in a cell. Because genes, of course, determine what that cell will do and what the sorts of ultimately the, the sorts of proteins it will create. But there are certain drugs that, yes, that kill brain cells. So methamphetamine kills brain cells. Mm. Um, it can kill brain cells. Um, there's a study published in the journal Science that was actually studying MDMA, ecstasy, but they inadvertently used methamphetamine. They eventually corrected their error, but they did see loss of some serotonergic neurons, so serotonin neurons, some dopamine neurons, and some other neurons. Drugs like heroin and heavy opioid use can potentially cause those sorts of 
damages to the brain and neural, neural circuitry. Now, marijuana is an interesting one. It's, you know, so different nowadays because in so many places it, it's legal for medicinal purposes. I, and I don't know all the laws on this across the, the country, of course. But, you know, for instance, even in Oakland, California, they've decriminalized psilocybin, so magic mushrooms. Now, what decriminalized means versus illegal, that's, you know, that, that's an interesting question and not one that I, I'm very versed in. But marijuana definitely slows certain metabolic functions in the brain. There's absolutely no question that it slows down brain processing in certain ways. Now, I am not an anti-drug crusader. I'm not here to say that people shouldn't use it if it's legal or whatever. But that's but the point is that it really does have an effect of lowering the, the overall metabolic activity of the brain. And that makes sense. I mean, in general, marijuana leads to an upregulation in the serotonin system, and it makes people pretty content to be where they're at. In general, people are using it to relieve some degree of anxiety. So some people have a lot of anxiety. They focus on that. People who smoke marijuana love to say, well, you know, alcohol kills many more people. They're probably right. Drunk driving definitely kills many more people. I also think there's tremendous individual variation. Mm. This goes back to kind of the early story. I think some people can manage THC consumption and even CBD consumption without too much trouble. Other people, it really puts them down the path of reduced motivation and more importantly, anxiety when they don't have it. You know, for something to be classified as addictive, it has to have certain properties. And clinically and legally, certain things fall into that category. But there's another category which is more psychological, which is, well, how does somebody do when they don't have that thing available to them? So nicotine is extremely addictive. You know, nicotine increases focus. I'm not suggesting people smoke cigarettes, but nicotine increases focus because acetylcholine is the molecule in the brain that largely controls focus of attention, and it binds to nicotinic receptors. So cigarettes stimulate the focus systems of the brain, and they also tend to create some relaxation. And they also have this cancer thing that is the reason why most people choose not to do it. So I think that you know we need to really think about marijuana more carefully, especially as it relates to kids. You know, I think in the you, last five years, it stunts like their psychological growth as kids, like their ability to respond to stress in a proper way. I will go on record saying that I personally don't think kids should smoke pot. Now, that is not because I think that it's going to instantly make all of them marijuana addicts or it's going to you know, kill brain cells or something. I think that, you know, and they're going to do a certain you know, number of them will do it anyway. But I really just think that it's because the, the young brain is so plastic, it's so fragile. And yet it's so in this phase where it can be wired according to experience that I think that introducing a chemical that really shifts the balance of other neurochemicals naturally in the brain unless there's a real clinical need, I just think that it's a very slippery slope. And I know some very motivated, high-functioning people that are adults who, who consume marijuana from time to time. I don't know many of them, but I don't know many young people who are chronic pot users who are very, very effective mm. in much of anything. 
Now, I might catch some flack for that. You know, it also depends on what your life is and what your life requires. You know, I'm mainly, when I'm holding this discussion, I'm mainly thinking in terms of the ability to use your mind to think and, be, and critical thinking and the kinds of things that are going to get you through college and the kinds of things that will get you through a challenging career of any kind. But, you know, I, the, the reason I mention individual variation is I think some people can function much better with these things in their life than others. But there are certain drugs like cocaine, amphetamine, opioids, heroin, that just across the board inevitably seem to cause problems for people. And they end up down a path that is just really sad and very destructive. Mm. So, you know, it goes back to, I think, our ability to manage stress, right? And I know you talk a lot about the growth mindset and how going through hard times of adversity can actually become something positive and how it can really cultivate some motivation and momentum from all of that. So like, how do you think that adversity and going through hard times impacts the brain from a neurological standpoint, neurochemical standpoint, and how can we respond to that fight or flight response? Because typically when we hit adversity, we hit fight or flight in a way that's conducive to a growth mindset. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I wouldn't wish trauma and hardship on anybody, but I think that certainly in my case, you know, having an early experience or set of early experiences where there was a lot of adrenaline in my system. And I'm not talking about the good kind. I'm talking about the, the scared kind. I don't know what's going to happen here. You know, loss of control around me, really feeling destabilized is really the reflection of having a lot of adrenaline in your system and learning to be comfortable with that. I mean, I, I think I learned a lot from, frankly, from martial arts where you're, you know, you're getting hit, you're getting hurt. Uh, again, I don't recommend people run out and do anything that gives them head damage because that has long-term effects too. But, you know, I definitely sparred my share of rounds and, and you learn how to anchor your thinking and stay clear and maintain control when you have a lot of adrenaline in your system. And trauma is terrible, obviously, but trauma is the test that many young people, unfortunately, but and adults get in terms of how well they can manage themselves and their nervous system when they have all this adrenaline and norepinephrine in their system. Those are the same molecule, actually. Norepinephrine and adrenaline, just to remind people, is, is released extremely fast and makes you feel very agitated and makes you feel like you want to say and do all sorts of things. And that's because its main goal is to put you into a mode of action and responsivity, not into a mode of relaxation. And so I think if so some people learn through sports to have high levels of adrenaline in their system and learn how to regulate their thinking and their, their actions in, in that regime where they're flooded with this stuff. Some people go through some sort of stress inoculation event in their life where they, you know, they'll do something very, very hard. They'll embrace a, you know, a, a marathon or a major exam. I mean, look, I've got a good friend who's a neurosurgeon and it's one of the hardest fields in, in medicine. And there's a lot of ad adrenaline at first, but a lot of the training is learning how to stay calm when things go wrong because there, you know, millimeters matter. And it's a successive process of, of stress inoculation. And when we say stress inoculation, we're not talking about no adrenaline released. We're talking about learning how to stay calm, even though there's adrenaline released. And those are two very different things. I, um, you know, I've been talking about this a little bit recently on Instagram, but the you know, the whole motivation for doing high intensity breathing or for ice baths 
is to put one's body and mind into a state of stress and then to find the ability to calm oneself inside of that. And it's not to eliminate the stress, it's to calm the mind while the body is agitated so that you're, you're in control. And I think that we've overemphasized the need to limit stress. I think most kids, frankly, would benefit from learning a stress inoculation practice, from increasing their threshold for stress. For me, that came through skateboarding, martial arts, and unfortunately, some hard events that threw me into stress. For other people, it comes from something else. But I think that we can enhance our capacity to cope with stress because these neural circuits that allow us to maintain clarity of mind when we're flooded with adrenaline, those circuits can be modified by experience. If you learn how to do that a few times, then when real life stress hits and kind of smacks you square in the face, you learn how to open up your gaze, realize where you are in time and in space, think for a second or more about what you're going to do and react adaptively. So you don't do stupid things that get you into trouble or that injure other people or yourself or get you thrown in jail or worse, you know, dead. So, or using again. So, you know, in the addiction community, there's a, I think a deep understanding now that the trauma and the backstory is important, but if you want to help somebody stay clean, get clean and stay clean, you need that person to understand how to control their actions when they are very agitated. And the opposite is true too. You know, a lot of people don't talk about this, but a lot of relapse in the addiction community is when people are feeling really good, right? They go, they were doing so well and then they, they crash. And that, per, and that makes sense too, based on our earlier discussion about dopamine, because remember, when you're feeling really good, the temptation is going to be to go find more things that make you feel good. And so it makes perfect sense to me why you hear that somebody's doing really well in life and everything's going great and all of a sudden they relapse. Well, that's because this molecule dopamine is generic. It doesn't know the difference between cocaine and a job promotion. So the person gets the job promotion, they've been clean for four years, and they're like, you know what, I'm doing great, I'm just going to go do one line of cocaine. And all of a sudden, they're back where they were, and it's like, well, the bridge from one to the other was dopamine. Makes perfect sense. So I think that's why, you know, in the addiction community, there are all these beautiful sayings, but they say, you know, we have to be careful of our high states and our low states, you know. You're always trying to modulate where you're at on that spectrum so that you neither lose track of where you've been, nor do you lose track of where you're going. And you know, what's interesting about AA and the NA language, you know, for the book I'm working on, I spend a lot of time in the addiction community learning from people is there's all this beautiful language in the NA and AA literature, like things that people can remember to keep them on track. It's not just the meetings, although the meetings are vital. It's not just the, the community, although the community is vital. It's these sayings. And th when I look at those sayings, every time I see one, I see neuroscience. I see an element of neuroscience. So those people that developed those sayings, they didn't know about brain function, but I think they had an unconscious genius and they were able to pull out some very core principles of neuroscience. And those core principles are embedded in, for instance, you know, the, whatever they call it, the 12-step the book or the big book. Forgive me, because I, I, I was tangential to that community just as an observer. So I don't have the names exactly right. So, yeah. you, so with that being said, from a neurological standpoint, what do you think is like the missing component to addiction treatment, if you can comment? Because, you know, overdoses continue to be on the rise, people continue to die, and 
there's no real cure, right? So what, do you think there's an answer from anything you've studied that, that people are missing? I do. I mean, I think, and I'm starting to get more involved in this. It's a little too early to, to describe, not because I'm being secretive, but because the exact shape of what, what I'm trying to put together hasn't been finalized. But you know, I think that there needs to be, first of all, we need biomarkers for addiction. Biomarkers, we have biomarkers for cancer. You go in, you get a blood draw or a biopsy. They'll tell you if you have cancer. We need biomarkers to know where somebody is in the addiction spectrum, how likely they are to relapse, how long they've been addicted. This is also important to the whole culture around insurance support of treatment centers and things of that sort. But I think a multi-pronged approach is going to be most beneficial. For somebody who's just a really rampant addict and they're using like crazy, obviously the most important thing is to get them clean. And people will say, well, you know, if you're living a healthy lifestyle, you're exercising, you're eating right, social connection, well, then you can help. It's easier to stay off drugs. Well, that's true. But some people are so far down the path that those behaviors aren't available to them. And that's what we have to also understand about depression. People say, oh, well, you wouldn't be depressed if you, you know, ate well, slept well, exercised. But some people are so depressed that they're not able to eat well, sleep well, exercise. I know that sounds crazy, but it, that's the way it is. And so it depends on where somebody's at in terms of their journey. But I think it's very important to include what's called a family systems model to really take into account trauma, take into account the family structure that may or may not exist. You know, a homeless person on the street who hasn't seen their family in 20 years, very different than a kid who's struggling with addiction and one or both parents is still at home. So a family systems model. I think tools to address anxiety, teaching addicts as they move through recovery, how to adjust their own levels of stress, to bring down their stress when that's what's needed, or to learn how to, in healthy ways, lean into stress so that they're able to cope with it when it's, you know, in the real world in the form of, you know, job loss or the potential to go use again or that kind of thing. So I think stress, trauma, family systems model, and I think we really have to take the neuroplasticity into account. If somebody's been an addict for 20 years, 10 years, and they've been using hard drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine, their brain needs very different things to get back to healthy than somebody who is earlier in the phase of addiction. So I think this is why it's a complicated problem, but it's not so complicated that it can't be worked out. One of the reasons I'm excited about this idea of a biomarker for addiction is that it would allow people to be funneled down different paths of treatment that I think would better suit them. You know, right now, it's all questionnaires. It's like they ask you questions and you talk to somebody. A lot of times that person doesn't know the person that they're asking the questions. And so they don't even have anything to compare it to. So people will say, you know, how often do you do this? How often do you have these thoughts? How often do you feel this way or act this way? And they don't even have anything to compare it to. You know, you would never do that for cancer. For cancer, they'd say stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Those, those actually, those stages are mapped onto real biological phenomenon. So there are people at Stanford and elsewhere who are trying to understand the biology of addiction. And the cool thing is they're now in communication with people from the legal system, people from the healthcare system to try and figure out a, a way that we can look at addiction as what it is, which is a biological phenomenon. I'm reluctant to, to use the word disease because if I use the word disease, then suddenly people will say, oh, well, you're trying to create an excuse for people's behavior. And so I don't use the word disease, but it is biological. 
in origin and you have to treat it biologically. It has a psychological component, but psychology is biological in origin. I love that. And I love the way you kind of describe your theory, kind of putting science behind it, because you're right. Like when people do go into treatment, it is a questionnaire. How often do you use drugs? What kind of drugs? Your family history, you know, underlying conditions, all these things. Just It's just pretty much people's answers. There's no real science or real evidence to show what it is. So the last thing I want to ask you is, is about the stress response and fight or flight. And what are some ways that when people get into this state where they're heightened, they're anxious, they're on edge, they feel threatened, what they can do to lower that stress response in a short amount of time so that they're able to kind of get back into a state of calmness? Yeah. Having tools at your disposal to quickly adjust your stress is so key. And you know the ones that I'm most in favor of are what I call real-time tools that were designed to calm you. And the, the tools that I'm aware of that work fastest are going to be respiration, aka breathing, and vision. So let's talk about the respiration tools. There's so much out there now about breath work and you know, meditation and all this stuff. But for most people, you know, for the typical person off the street, you know, my, my sister, you know, my neighbor, they're not doing daily breath work. What they need is something that when they're feeling anxious, they can calm themselves quickly. And so there's a very straightforward neural circuit. So a collection of neurons in the brain that control the diaphragm, which is this muscle in our bodies that moves our lungs. And there's a pattern of breathing that are called physiological sighs which involves inhaling twice through the nose and then exhaling once through the mouth. And that pattern of breathing has the ability to completely inflate these little sacs in our lungs, which become deflated when we're stressed. And what's cool about it is when you do that double inhale, it fills those sacs. And then when you exhale, it pulls carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream and pushes it out of your system. So carbon dioxide is part of the reason why we feel stress. So this double inhale, so, so double inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth, that done one or three times is the fastest way that I'm aware of to calm down when you're feeling stressed. You don't have to make any noise doing that. I'm just doing that because there's a microphone here so that people can understand. Now, if you can't breathe through your nose, you can do it through your mouth, although it's better to do both inhales through the nose and the exhale through the mouth. Now, how often can you do this? Anytime you feel stressed. So you're going to inhale big deep inhale, and then sneak in a little bit more air and then exhale, nice long exhale. Most people find that just one, maybe two of those or three of those will calm them down really quickly. Be aware, however, that the, your heartbeat is going to be the last thing to come down that, and you want that to be a slow process. You don't want your heartbeat to quickly slow down. So these physiological sighs have been shown to occur th during sleep, during claustrophobia as a way for animals and people to regulate their levels of uh, excitation and, and kind of arousal, aka stress. And it's a tool that's embedded in all of us. You know, you there's no learning. I mean, I had to tell it to you for you to learn it, to know it, but there's no learning involved, meaning there's no neuroplasticity involved. But that said, if, if people do this repeatedly throughout the day, or they do this when they feel stressed, pretty soon they get a very rapid reduction in stress by just doing it once. And that's because the circuits get more powerful. They get stronger as you do them. The vision tools for relieving stress are powerful too because they, they're completely covert also. No one has to know you're doing them. So the one that I like the most involves dilating your gaze. So 
This means not moving your head or eyes. So it's not looking around the room. It's just whatever you're looking at, whether or not it's a computer or your phone or you're in conversation with somebody, it's just, or you're just sitting there not looking at much of anything at all. You just start dilating your gaze so that you can see as much of the room or the space that you're in as possible. And then you start to see your body in the space that you're in. And what this does is it releases a brainstem mechanism like deep in the brain that's involved in vigilance and attention. And when you do that, you very quickly experience a relaxation response. And you can combine these things. You can do the double inhale, exhale, and then dilate your gaze. And what you'll find is that stress is reduced very, very fast. Now, there's one other tool for stress that I think is really exciting, which is the ability to raise your threshold for stress. And to do that, typically you want to push yourself into a stressful mode couple ways you can do that. You can take a cold shower, you can take an ice bath. But the, the way that I think is most interesting and powerful is, and doesn't involve the need for equipment or anything like that, is to do 25 or 30 really quick, deep breaths. So it's going to be inhale deep, exhale, inhale deep, exhale. And what you'll find is by the 25th or so, you'll feel stressed, you'll feel agitated, and it doesn't feel good. But then if you exhale your air, and you sit calmly for maybe 10, 15 seconds, you'll realize that you can be completely calm even though you've got all that adrenaline in your system because you didn't get rid of the adrenaline. You repeat that two or three times, and what you'll find is, in general, stressful events in life don't have so much of an impact on you as more, anymore. So it's a, it's a really um, different way to approach stress relief. It's really about throwing yourself into stress and learning how to tolerate stress. The size and the panoramic vision, the dilating your gaze, those are more about pushing back on stress when it happens in real time. And I should just mention about the rapid breathing. You know, a lot of people don't like it. It's not for everybody, nor are ice baths for everybody for that matter. Um, don't do it anywhere near water because it is possible to get dizzy and pass out. Don't do it while driving. Don't do it while bicycling. Do it seated or standing. And that first round, people do feel agitated. And, you know, of course, if you have a heart condition or something, talk to your doctor. But, you know, with all the appropriate caveats in mind, breathing is a path to feeling certain ways, stressed or unstressed. And you, once you start to realize that you can use respiration as a way to steer those paths, then you also develop an additional level of understanding and control over your nervous system so that when troubling things arrive, you recognize, I am in an altered state. And then you start looking to things like your breathing and your vision to control that state. And you start to realize that you have a lot more control over your internal landscape and your nervous system than perhaps you initially might have thought. Yeah, Andrew. And I think everything you just provided is so powerful because what happens, I believe, is we get into these fight or flight modes, these stress responses, and these golf ball sized problems become bowling balls by the way we respond and react. And having those tools in the tool belt as simple as you just described is super powerful and extremely helpful when we're going through hard times. And also you, you coaching on how to increase your you know, ability to manage stress through the last breath work you shared. So I know a lot of people are going to want to find out more about you because everything you shared in this episode is super tactical. It's easily digestible and it's just fascinating. So where can people find out more about you? Um, yeah. So I, teach neuroscience, meaning I offer little videos informing different aspects of neuroscience, plasticity, some stuff about stress and addiction and sleep, et cetera, on Instagram. And so you can find me on Instagram at Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. 
I do try and respond to direct messages and uh, to answer comments. Sometimes I'm a few weeks or even longer delayed in doing that. But um, there you can find information about neuroscience and exciting discoveries in neuroscience that hopefully uh, people can make use of it in their life. And in addition to that, our lab runs studies from time to time where we recruit from the general public. Right now, because of the situation with COVID, we're doing this remotely, but we just launched a study actually with 125 participants who are wearing sleep trackers, heart rate variability um, measurements and stuff, and they're doing breathing practices each day. If somebody wants to be in that study, you should send me a direct message at Instagram and please put breathing study or something in the, you know, somewhere prominently so I know what it's referring to. You know, we obviously don't charge for people to be in those studies. We actually usually pay people or they receive a nice piece of technology that they then can keep. So look for those. Right now, the current study, we have a few more slots, but it's probably going to be closed by the time uh, the podcast comes out, but we will have others. And if you want to know more about the science, you know, like a details of the studies that are going on in my lab and kind of get more down into the weeds and into the details, there's also a hubermanlab.com website where you can download the papers obviously no cost or anything like that. And and there's some more in-depth descriptions of the science that we're doing in the lab. Awesome, man. Well, y'all going to want to check him out. He's doing some amazing things, you know, arguably one of the smartest guys I know. So Andrew, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. And once again, you know, reach out to Andrew, reach out to myself, leave us a review to let us know how you liked it. But once again, Andrew, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been excited to do this and I'm looking forward to more interactions in the future. Yeah, man, you got it. And for those listening, you are listening to um, this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we will see you next time.